Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. On Halloween night, 1959, in front of a packed house at LSU, Billy Cannon fielded a punt on his own 11 in the fourth quarter, just outside the right numbers, and immediately broke through a first tackle. He stumbled, busted through a second tackle, then a third at the 25, deked the opposition at the 35, got loose from another would-be tackler at the 45, and then ran down the right sideline to complete an incredible 89-yard punt return for a touchdown to lead LSU to to a 7-3 victory over rival Ole Miss. It was perhaps the greatest punt return in the history of LSU football. In fact, that punt return is played on the big screen at LSU every time Ole Miss comes to town and is just part of the legend of Billy Cannon. Now, part two of Billy Cannon on Sports Forgotten Heroes. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hey, if you want to see a clip of that run, I have a link to it at sportsfh.com. That's sportsfh.com. And if you would like to learn more on how you can participate in a future podcast of Sports Forgotten Heroes, please check out our page on patreon.com backslash sportsfh. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash sportsfh. You can learn more on how you can participate and ask questions of our guests, like today's guest, Charles DeGravel, who wrote the great book, Billy Cannon, A Long, Long Run, or from the sportshistorian.com, Jim Weathersby. You know, Billy Cannon enjoyed a spectacular career at LSU, won a Heisman Trophy and a national championship, and ultimately became the number one pick in the NFL draft by Pete Rozelle and the Los Angeles Rams. But the upstart AFL, along with Bud Adams, the owner of the Houston Oilers, also wanted Billy Cannon. And they offered him an incredible contract. So the battle for his services was just beginning. And here to tell us more about that battle from the sportshistorian.com is Jim Weathersby. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Um, the first contract that he signed was uh, at the end of 1959 in November. He was up in New York uh, with fellow All-Americans being feted and being on the Ed Sullivan show and and you're right, Pete Rozelle, then general manager of the Rams, um, the Rams had the first pick that year in the NFL draft, and they, they wanted Billy. And uh, basically, Rozelle was able to coerce Billy to take a train from New York to Philadelphia and to, to sign a contract, which was you know pretty good for the time. They, the Rams basically offered him $30,000 for three years plus the $10,000 signing bonus and $500 uh, expenses uh, for the basis a short train ride from New York to Philadelphia and Billy Billy signed the contract and uh, interestingly uh, at the end of the Sugar Bowl there in January 1960 at the end of the game 
the Oilers team out, offered him a contract uh, right there in one of the end zones, and Billy signed that not knowing what the terms were. And so later on, he went back to Baton Rouge and decided, yeah, you know what, I, I should honor this uh, this NFL contract. And basically told the Oilers that, look, you know, I, I can't I can't play for you. But uh, Bud Adams, like you said, then the owner of the Houston uh, Oilers, one of the, from the, the New American Football League, um, he basically wouldn't take no for an answer and uh, used uh, Billy's friend, Alvin Roy, who got Billy into weightlifting um, to – to convince Billy to, to listen to what Bud Adams had to say. So Bud went down to Baton, Baton Rouge, offered Billy more money that he could dream of, a contract of $33,000 a year for each, for three years, $33,000 a year each for three years, guaranteed, plus a $10,000 signing bonus and a $500 uh, <clears throat> expense check basically, but what the Rams had offered it from that standpoint. So that was a hell of a lot of money, and, and Billy was, you know, thinking about it. <laughs> and ever the uh, the business person, uh, he negotiated uh, with Bud Adams at uh, a, a, fleet, a Cadillac Fleetwood for Billy's father and uh, got that as part of the deal, too. Well, you know, Bud Adams wasn't stupid. He, he realized that the NFL wasn't just going to roll over, and he told Billy, look, um, if the NFL tries to do something about this, and they probably will, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, make sure that my lawyers defend you, and we're going to win this thing. And so you're right. The NFL sued, and they went to court, and uh, the judge ruled basically that um, uh, the NFL contract, which was three three separate contracts, one for each year, he threw out the last two years immediately because he said that um, – the contract had not been signed by the NFL commissioner and um, uh, had not been filed properly. And he said that the first year, everything was proper, but um, he voided that year as well because he said Pete Rozelle negotiated with, with Billy without Billy having some kind of representation there to look out for his, his own interests. So the judge threw out the contract, um, the NFL contract, and the Oilers had Billy services and <laughs> I, I believe Bud Adams uh, paid thirty-seven thousand dollars to def- defend that uh, his contract for Billy, and which in that day and age was a, was a lot of money. But Billy became a Houston Oiler in the fledgling American Football League. Like Weathersby said, Billy was property of the American Football League. The NFL lost its battle to gain his services. Here now is Charles de Gravel. One of the many great ironies uh, in Billy's story is that the judge decided that because Billy hadn't, uh, he had met with Pete Rosell one-on-one to negotiate and sign the NFL contract, because he hadn't been represented by anyone and because he was, I can't remember exactly the words, but, but he was an innocent country lad. Uh, that had been taken advantage of. <laughs> Billy was anything but. But he was willing to play along uh, and 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 uh, win win the higher contract. But the, but the judge said he wasn't represented. Therefore, and he was represented during the the Bud Adams uh, meeting in Baton Rouge. So that was the deciding factor. You know, he did put up some terrific numbers during those eleven years, though. 
2,455 rushing yards, uh, 3,656 receiving yards. He scored 64 touchdowns. I mean, 64 touchdowns is a lot of touchdowns. But in 1961, he had one heck of a game against the New York Titans, who later changed their name to the New York Jets. Do you recall that game? Can you tell me a little bit about that game? That, that game was a spectacular win for Billy Cannon, but um, it was, it was uh, an outstanding game in an outstanding first couple of years. If he had not hurt his back in his second year of pro ball, and had been able to continue running at the uh, level that he was running at, his numbers would be a lot higher. Um, and so he he was uh, he lost a little bit of his edge when uh, Emil Karras came down on his back in a really difficult tackle, and uh, he they switched him from running back to to uh, tight end. Right. But uh, he turned that position into a a a. a, a an offensive threat. Yeah, and he he he, uh, he continued to exercise that speed to get past the secondary, catch passes, and make touchdowns. That game against the Titans, he had the most yards from scrimmage in a single non-overtime game, 330. He had 373 all-purpose yards, scored five touchdowns. He had 260 yard, uh, 216 yards rushing. Uh, he was the league's MVP that year with 948 yards, and he was the championship game MVP for a second year in a row. He had quite the career with the Oilers. Yeah, he won the championship in 1960, was named the game's MVP, led the Oilers to the AFL championship again in 61, and for a second time, like I just said, was named the game's MVP. He did hurt his back in 62, as you alluded to. And after just four years with Houston, he moved on to Oakland. What, what was behind the move from Houston to Oakland? Well, he, he um, was very dissatisfied with the coaching at Houston. And uh, they changed coaches a number of times in a, in a short period. Uh, he had personality issues uh, with the coaching staff, and uh, he was not unhappy when they um, they they offered to trade him. Um, and when he got out to uh, uh, Oakland and began to play with uh, with the Raiders, he liked Al Davis very much, and uh, he he continued to play with them for again several years. When Billy got to Oakland, and even though Al Davis liked him, it wasn't smooth sailing. As DeGravel said earlier, Billy had to change positions. He became a tight end. And although he didn't like the move at first, Billy converted the tight end position into a legitimate scoring threat. Here now is Jim Weathersby. Oakland was slowly building um, its team into a formidable uh, a formidable franchise, and, and, and it finally came to fruition in 1976 when they won their first Super Bowl. But going back to, to Billy's days, you know, he started out as, as a fullback and revolutionized that position. Fullbacks were basically blockers for the other running backs, but Billy could catch passes, and once he caught them, he could do something with them because of his speed and elusiveness. So he started out at fullback, and then a year or two later, uh, 
old Al Davis convinced him to to become a tight end. And again, at that point in time, tight ends were known mainly just as, as blocking uh, uh, pieces. And Billy revolutionized that position by by uh, having the ability to go down the field and catch 20, 30, 40-yard passes and turn them into touchdowns. So you know, wherever Billy went, things just seemed to turn to gold for him. And, um, you know, he hung on with the Raiders uh, into, the, into 1970, and, and you know, his, his skills by that time were lacking, and the Raiders uh, cut him, and he ended up getting picked up by the, uh, the, the Kansas City Chiefs, coached by uh, Hank Stram, and, and finished out uh, – his career in 1970 with the Chiefs, he had, like late in the season, he had a bad knee, knee injury, and that pretty much uh, sealed the deal for him to move on to, to other things. But um, he, you know, 11 years, he he, he thrived um, in um, the American Football League, and I don't know how much better he he could have been in the NFL. Yeah, he probably could have had more exposure, but really did some great things for the AFL. And like I said, the AFL eventually merged with the NFL, and uh, you know became modern-day NFL that it is today. His football career now over, Billy turned to something he had been working on during off-seasons. He became a dentist, and he built a rather large practice. When he was a boy growing up in the the, the blue-collar neighborhood of North Baton Rouge called Estruma, there was a, a dentist in that part of town that just became Billy's role model. He was a very generous guy who uh, helped a lot of uh, indigent people and poor people who uh, couldn't always afford the kind of work that he offered. And he would give um, barbecues for the football team and um, and was very active in his church and was active in promoting the dental school and what have you. And this, this dentist became the, the, the person that Billy wanted to be. And uh, so as much as he loved football, he, even as a young man, knew he wanted to be a dentist and wanted to be the kind of person that this fellow was. And he went home to do it, too, right? He didn't, he didn't uh, stay out in Oakland. He didn't go to Kansas City. He wasn't in Houston. He went back home. How important was being home to Billy? Well, you know, during his career, he earned his, uh, his dental degree uh, off-season, uh, over a number of years at the University of Tennessee Dental School. And so when he wasn't playing in the spring, he was in school. And, um, but his, he, he got his degree just about the time that he was finishing his professional career, and that's when he wanted to get a special certificate in orthodontics and went to, uh, to Loyola in Chicago and, uh, and finished there. But he knew he was always going to come back to Baton Rouge. Um, that's where, you know, he was so well-known and so well-loved. And uh, so it's, you know, when it was time to start his career, he was back in Baton Rouge. And he built a pretty big practice. But despite the fact that his practice was so successful, he still had his hands in other places, particularly real estate and gambling. Not a good mix. What happened? Well, he was not really he was not really uh, an excessive gambler. He did love and does. He still owns uh, thoroughbreds to race, um, and has 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 raced his own horses for many years. But he has never, despite uh, you know a, a lot of rumors to the contrary, he has never uh, spent a lot of money gambling. Uh, 
but he did overextend himself in real estate in the market downturn in the late 70s and early 80s. It was a, a decline in the economy that was uh, uh, triggered by the the uh, fall in oil price. I'm sorry, the the spike in oil prices, and um, uh, and and Louisiana is a is an oil producing state. Sure. And um, so, but what it meant was that everything went up, including real estate, and he could not uh, he couldn't get rid of his. Uh, real estate that he had spent a lot of money on, and he began to, to face a, a, a bear market. So he, um, he decided he was going to literally make money, um, <laughs> and, and he, he got in bed with the guy who um, had been convicted of counterfeiting before, somebody who had been a boxer at LSU, a guy named John Stiglitz, and... Um, and they came up with this scheme, and initially Billy wasn't supposed to do anything but front the money, but in the end, Billy was holding just big giant duffel bags full of hundred dollar bills in his uh, dental in his orthodontics uh, office, and uh, it, it caught up with him. How, how was he found out? How, how, did, how did how did it catch up with him? Well, the guy, John Stiglitz, uh, was very good at what he did. And when the first counterfeit bills started turning up and they made it back to Washington, D.C., in the office of the Secret Service, the, um, the, the head people at the, at the Secret Service said, and recognized the style, recognized the, 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 the craftsmanship, and said, if you want to find the rest of these bills, find John Stiglitz. And so that was the beginning of the end. And uh, so Billy was found out pretty on, pretty early on. They they really hadn't. He never did make any money out of the thing. But Secret Service uh, rented a whole floor in a local hotel, and Billy began to recognize them uh, as they followed him around. And he just knew the game was up. But um, until the day that they raided his house, he you know he was a uh, playing the game, uh, that he didn't do it. But when they finally caught up with him, he fessed up. And they found some buried in his yard, didn't they? They found some buried out in a field, one of his uh, real estate acquisitions, uh, and they found some uh, buried outside of his dental office. You know, here's a guy who had such a great high school career, a great college career, followed that with a great pro career, a terrific dental practice. And one morning he wakes up in jail. I mean, that's got to be a tough pill to swallow. Uh, I, I imagine, you know, any uh, anybody with that kind of uh, fame uh, and success who lands, whether he's a politician or, or, you know, an actor or somebody else and ends up in jail, it's, it's just a long, long way down. It's a long fall. And a very, very humbling experience. And uh, But one of the things that I, I so admire about him is that he didn't try to point fingers and blame anybody else. He took the responsibility. He, he just took it in the kind of humor that he has. He paid his dues, and he got out, and he, uh, he had to struggle a bit, but he got back on his feet. 
what did what did he tell you about his time in jail? What 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 was it like for him? Oh, well, it was a federal prison in Texarkana. He was sentenced to five years, and um, with the good time that comes with these kinds of places, he ended up serving two and a half years, and then a little bit of time in a halfway house in Baton Rouge. But um, it was uh, it was just tedium. Uh, you know, he uh, here's a guy with you know, one of the great athletes uh, of his generation who was out with a, a lawnmower and, you know, uh, doing gardening and stuff. Uh, but he, as he always did, he managed to make friends. And one of his friends uh, had a wife and family uh, nearby who would drop him groceries. Uh, they weren't supposed to eat anything but the prison food. But this friend of Billy's had a wife who would drop off the groceries, and they would sneak out and get them. <laughs> and uh, they took turns going out, and it was Billy's turn to go out, and um, and he got caught. <sighs> and uh, he said, doggone it, I've been uh, it's a, uh, possession of roast beef with intent to distribute. <laughs> <laughs> what a great sense of humor. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, one of the things uh, in your book uh, that I read was that, you know, when he got out of jail, he didn't sulk. He didn't whine. He knew what he did. and He paid the price. You know, he didn't go around saying, everybody, poor me. And as as you had just alluded to, you know, we struggled a little bit. But you know what? His family was still there for him. And in an ironic twist, he actually went to work for the prison system. How did that come about? It was it was really uh uh you know it was it, it was a one of those circumstances one of those coincidences uh, that turned out as you say to be really uh, an irony. Um, he needed work. Uh, he couldn't get his practice going back. People were cold shouldering him, and um, the dentist in town had uh, decided that they weren't going to support him and send in, send him any clients, any patients. And uh, so he needed work, and uh, he got through to the uh, governor of Louisiana through the governor's brother, and there was a position open at uh, Angola Prison. And uh, uh, what a step down. But it was a job, and uh, as soon as he got there, of course, everybody knew Billy Cannon. The warden was just another fan, and the warden knew how talented he was, not just as a football player, but as a man. And the warden was a... undersuited at the federal suit at the time about the medical conditions and he put Billy to work in reforming the whole medical department which Billy did and within a couple of years they were out from under the suit and Billy Cannon was a you know turned from football player to prisoner to prison reformer why is there such a love affair with Billy Cannon and what did he mean to LSU in the community is it all because He's a local, you know, local star make good, a local boy makes good. Why is there such a love affair with Billy Cannon? It's it's very interesting to me, Warren. I was uh, I, I wanted to plumb the depths of the man and try to figure that out. I think one of the reasons is um, he put LSU football on the map. Um, LSU football has never been the same since that 1958 championship team. It put them into um, into the big league, so to speak. And uh, what what is just another Saturday night uh, before Billy Cannon, 
became a ritual for a social ritual for the whole town. Uh, if you've never been to a football game here at, at, at Tiger Stadium, you need to come up and, and go. It's really an amazing event. Um, but Billy Cannon is just associated with LSU football in a way that nobody else seems to be. But the love affair with Billy Cannon is also due to his extraordinary gifts as an athlete. Remember, Cannon was not only a great football player, but he excelled as a track athlete as well. And as Jim Weathersby explains, Cannon was the complete package. Well, he had uh, a, a physical stature and ability that very few people had in that day and age. I mean, he, uh, he had world-class speed. Uh, he had incredible power. Um, he was quick and agile and, and, like I said, could, could turn and cut on a dime. He could throw the ball. He could catch the ball. He could block. He could kick. He could do anything on a football field. But probably what set him above everybody else was his mental toughness. I mean, he, he always had a great worth ethic that was instilled in him by his family at an early age. And he would set out, you know, in the off season, working hard with the weights, doing anything to improve. And uh, he was determined to win. I mean, the man was a winner. He had this special aura about him, you know, kind of like Michael Jordan in basketball. You just knew something special was going to happen when Billy Cannon was on that football field. And yeah, that, that was back in the late fifties and, and the pros, you know, in, in the sixties. And in, in this day and age, people probably have forgotten him. But he was arguably the best football player of his era. And, um, you know, it, it, it is a shame that Father Time kind of erases the memories of a lot of people. But, but Billy Cannon was something special. And LSU remembers that and the fans. And he's honored almost seemingly like every year when he goes back to the school there. And, you know, his old high school, Struma High and Baton Rouge, they, they, they think highly of him. And, you know, I think Al Davis had a great relationship with him. You know, it's probably all up until his death a few years ago. So he's well-respected. I mean, he's in the College Football Hall of Fame. He's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. One day uh, he gets elected. So he uh, he was a special athlete, and, of course, he's still alive today. I don't want to put him in his grave before, before his time, but he, he, he was spectacular at LSU. There was – Everybody was trying to get him. Bear Bryant, Johnny Vaught, I mean, the great programs of the day, they wanted Billy Cannon, but in, in, when it all came to, to sign, he signed with the hometown LSU Tigers and, and probably one of the greatest decisions he ever made. But, yeah, it was his physical abilities and his mental abilities that just made him something special. And uh, all the accolades he, he, he got over the years were well-deserved. And uh, there may not be another – player like uh, with with Billy Cannon's abilities so it he's a great one Billy Cannon still lives down in the Baton Rouge area and as you might expect he and DeGravel became quite friendly and the one thing DeGravel noted is that despite everything that has happened the good and the not so good Cannon is a pretty down-to-earth guy who just loves life he is, uh, I'm happy to tell you, one of one of my best friends. We, we just developed a really good relationship from having written the book and then having spent a lot of time on the road selling it. Um, he is charming. He is uh, witty. He is just a nice guy. 
and um, you know people would just get angry having to wait so long uh, to get him to sign the book. But after a couple of minutes talking to him, they walked off on cloud nine. He could just charm the socks off of you. Well, you know, um, if anybody out there wants to read a great book, they've got to order your book. Go to Amazon to order it. Stop in your local Barnes and Noble. Billy Cannon, A Long, Long Run. Charles, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. It's been terrific. It, it was a pleasure, Warren. Great questions, and I just really enjoyed our discussion. Thanks again to both of my guests, Charles DeGravel, the author of the terrific biography on Billy Cannon. Billy Cannon, A Long, Long Run. You can go to any local Barnes & Noble and pick up a copy or order it off of Amazon.com. And Jim Weathersby from the SportsHistorian.com. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To learn how you can be a part of Sports Forgotten Heroes, please visit patreon.com backslash sportsfh. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash sportsfh. You could even find out how to ask a question on a future podcast. Again, that's patreon.com backslash sportsfh. You can also find out more about Sports Forgotten Heroes at sportsfh.com or sportsforgottenheroes.com. You can follow us on Twitter at sportsfheroes and on Facebook as well. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the incredible story of Bill Barilka. Thanks again and see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.